it's so hard emotionally. Um, it's like you are losing one of, one of your precious in front of your eyes. We're witnessing a profound surge of violence against civilians, against health workers, patients, facilities, humanitarian convoys across a full spectrum of countries that is really shredding the accountability and protections that are contained in the Geneva Conventions. The attack on Kunduz was a sustained attack over an hour, despite the fact that all this, the parties knew us at our GPS coordinate. We must say that it was our bigger loss in terms of lives. 42 people died, 14 of our staff. This was a tragic mistake. This is a period when there's the danger of vacuum around the world and a danger for the abuse of power by states that are strong enough to do so. The international sense of conscience and consciousness that led to the responsibility to protect uh, in the early 2000s has certainly been eroded. People are struggling to respond. They're building clinics and hospitals and underground bunkers. They're documenting these attacks and publishing them. They're taking measures to the UN Security Council. Stop bombing hospital. Stop bombing health workers. But up to Stop now, these measures have not had much effect in deterring attacks. But many courageous individuals and groups continue the fight. This is a fight that's going to last well into the future. We believe that war stopped at the door of our hospital, and we want to preserve that. And we want to preserve access to healthcare in, uh, in war zones. We need, that's a battle that's worth to fight. Currently, India ranks 54th on the World Bank's Logistics Performance Index, more than 20 spots below manufacturing competitors like China and Malaysia. This is a major challenge for Modi's Make in India initiative. For example, India's truckers report that 15% to 25% of travel time is actually spent waiting at the heavily enforced state border checkpoints. They pay as much as $1.1 billion a year in bribes to state officials. The main problem is that India does not have a single national market. Its 29 states and seven union territories each have their own system of sales taxes. As a result, internal borders look more like international ones. The version of the goods and services tax sitting before parliament isn't perfect, but it will cut down on transit time for goods, paperwork for businesses, and could add one half of a percent to annual economic growth. A seamless national tax environment will help Indian commerce flow more quickly. Here in Southern Africa, the rains have failed for the second year in a row. The land is parched, crops have been decimated, livestock are dying, people are going hungry. It's a picture repeated across 10 countries in the region, where around 40 million people will likely need emergency assistance before the year is out. The cause? El Nino, a cyclical feature of our climate system that causes the Pacific Ocean to warm and triggers abnormal weather conditions across the world. The 2015-16 instalment was one of the strongest on record and it's causing havoc in Southern Africa. 
CSIS saw the impact for itself in June, during a visit to Mozambique and Malawi. As always, the poorest have been hardest hit, and there's particular concern for two especially vulnerable groups, children and people living with HIV. Both groups can get sick very quickly if they don't get enough food and the right kind of food. Governments in the affected countries are struggling to cope with this crisis. The United States is helping, along with other donors. These communities in southern Mozambique receive vouchers they can exchange for food. These efforts have already saved lives. But support isn't reaching all those who need it. Humanitarian appeals are massively underfunded. Even those who receive assistance can barely sustain themselves because, as this woman explained, food prices are climbing, reducing the value of their vouchers. And the worst is yet to come. Many of the hardest hit parts of southern Africa won't see another harvest until next spring, and that's assuming the weather cooperates. People in this part of Africa are used to coping with the tough conditions, but increasingly erratic weather patterns, exacerbated by climate change, are putting immense strain on households. Aid agencies are trying to build resilience among communities vulnerable to natural disasters and food shocks. Dorothy Namula and her family are among those to benefit from one such project, run by the US Agency for International Development in Malawi's Balaka district. Fides Kasamale is a nutrition assistant in USAID's Feed the Future project in Dorothy's district. He tries to get farmers to grow a more diverse array of crops. He says changing behavior takes time, but his efforts are starting to pay off. And, uh, I expect this year we will have um, a lot of people growing different crops, like uh, the soya, uh, the groundnuts, maize of course, sorghum, and not only the crops, even uh, the keeping of uh, livestock uh, uh, in their homes. The aim is that families like Dorothy's will get the tools and know-how to grow a wider variety of crops and achieve higher yields. Not only will the food they produce offer a more diverse diet that keeps them healthy, it will provide a regular surplus that can be sold at the market. But it's hard work to sustain livelihoods in the face of these repeated shocks. Breaking the cycle of crisis will require governments in the region to prioritise policy reform, to strengthen markets and incentivize change. Greg Collins helps countries build up their resilience capacities. And the great thing is we're starting to see good examples of country-led efforts that we can point to. So when I was in Malawi, a lot of what I talked to the government about was what Kenya had done, what Ethiopia has done, even what uh, the government in Niger is doing to own this risk and get ahead of recurrent crisis, to deal with it proactively. Positive change won't be easy and it won't come overnight. But it is possible with the commitment of host governments and the assistance of international partners like the United States, not only to meet today's crisis, but to prevent tomorrow's from occurring. On August 2, 2011, President Obama signed into law the Budget Control Act. Five years later, it's worth reflecting on how it came into existence and what it has meant for the U.S. military. 
In the spring of 2011, the federal deficit was projected to peak at $1.5 trillion. Republicans had just taken control of the House. Democrats wanted to increase the debt ceiling, but Republicans insisted on dollar-for-dollar -dollar cuts in spending. Both sides refused to yield, forcing a fiscal standoff. What emerged was the Budget Control Act, a resurrection of a much older law known as graham rudman hollings The BCA reinstated budget caps for the discretionary parts of the federal budget. These caps were set to meet a deficit reduction target over the next 10 years. For defense, this meant about a trillion dollars less than the president had requested. Like the original graham rudman hollings law, the BCA created an exception for war funding, but we'll get back to that in a moment. The BCA was really intended to be a forcing function for a broader budget deal, so the law created the so-called Super Committee with special authority to propose a deficit reduction package subject to a simple up or down vote in both chambers. It also resurrected sequestration, the automatic process of making across-the-board budget cuts. After the first year of enforcement, however, sequestration is only triggered if Congress appropriates more than the budget caps allow. Despite much finger-pointing after the fact, the BCA passed with bipartisan majorities in both chambers. A lot has happened since the BCA was enacted. By November 2011, the Super Committee officially gave up, unable to forge a broader budget deal. Throughout 2012, defense leaders repeatedly warned about the consequences of the cuts imposed by the BCA, but steadfastly refused to plan for it. And now the wolf's at the door. In January 2013, Congress passed a last-minute budget deal that increased the budget cap slightly for 2013, but it paid for these increases in part by reducing the caps for 2014. By March, time had run out and sequestration was triggered. The across-the-board cuts forced DOD to cancel training, delay maintenance, and furlough more than 600,000 civilian workers. In late 2013, Congress passed a second budget deal that raised the budget caps for 2014 and 2015. Both Congress and the administration stuck to this deal over the next two years, thus avoiding sequestration. In late 2015, Congress passed a third deal that also raised the budget caps for two years. Unlike previous deals, however, it added $8 billion in war funding for defense and $8 billion in war funding for non-defense. Yes, war funding for the non-defense side of the budget. I told you we'd get back to that exception. The BCA does not provide a detailed definition for what constitutes war-related funding, so in effect, it is whatever Congress and the President agree it is. And because war funding does not count against the budget cap, it effectively creates a loophole. DOD has used this loophole in its budget request by relabeling roughly $25 to $30 billion from its base budget as being Afghanistan-related. While DOD certainly felt budgetary pain in 2013, the three budget deals and the use of OCO funding have kept the defense budget near the level it was before the cuts began. Looking forward, the budget caps remain at their original level for 2018 to 2021. These caps were set to meet an arbitrary deficit reduction target without regard for strategy or need, and much has changed in the world over the past five years. The caps have also created a pattern of last-minute deals and OCO funding gimmicks that have made rational, long-term planning difficult. To break out of this pattern, the next administration will need to strike a long-term budget deal, or else the last five years of the BCA could be a lot like the first five.
January 17, Iraq time, marks an unrecognized milestone. The United States has been bombing that country almost continuously for a quarter of a century. What has the U.S. been trying to accomplish with all these air attacks? And what has been the effect? The air attacks have occurred in five phases. But to fully understand this history, we need to go back to the beginning of air power theory. The tactical use of air power sought to defeat enemy air attacks and to strike enemy ground forces. But the horror of World War I led some air power advocates to propose a new idea. Use air power strategically to strike at an enemy's economy, population, and political leadership, thereby winning wars without costly ground campaigns. The massive conventional air campaigns in World War II, in Korea, and in Vietnam produced many positive results, but they did not by themselves produce enemy surrender. When Desert Storm began, some in the Air Force hoped that new technologies would force Saddam to surrender from an air campaign alone. Others saw air power as part of a joint campaign working with ground and naval forces. And an attack on military targets in Iraq and Kuwait. Air attacks did make a major contribution to winning Desert Storm. But as was true of previous adversaries, Saddam did not surrender to air attacks alone. Iraqi civil society and Saddam's government proved to be highly resilient. After the war, Saddam used his own air power to suppress insurrections and stay in power. So the U.S. instituted no-fly zones in the north to protect the Kurds and in the south to protect the Shia. These were successful in protecting the threatened groups, but no-fly zones turned out to be major military operations. Maintaining them year after year required continuous suppression of Iraqi air defenses and periodic attacks on the Iraqi military. I take the fact that the Weapons of mass destruction. The U.S. launched a new wave of air attacks during the invasion of Iraq in 2003. These attacks looked a lot like those of 1991, with two changes. The first was attacking Iraqi leadership directly, called decapitation. The second was called shock and awe, hitting a society so hard and in so many ways that it becomes disoriented and collapses. Both failed. Saddam evaded attack, and although Iraqi society suffered, Saddam did not surrender. In other areas, air power again made major contributions. During the long Iraqi insurgency, air power played a useful but secondary role because insurgencies produced only a few and then very fleeting targets. Many air missions were taken over by UAVs. Their patience and precision matched the nature of counterinsurgency. Over the years, a conventional wisdom has arisen about the use of air power. Decapitation is hard to do, but can sometimes be successful if there is a small group of charismatic enemy leaders. Strategic air attack can cause a lot of destruction, but its ability to win wars on its own is unproven. Battlefield support can be very effective, but it needs a viable ground force, US, allied, or local, to win battles. In 2014, President Obama pledged to disrupt and ultimately destroy ISIS. To do this, the US appears to be using air power in all three ways. Results so far, are again mixed. We've killed several ISIS leaders, but others have replaced them. We've killed a lot of enemy fighters, but so far ISIS has been able to replace them, though with some strain. We provided air support to the Iraqi and local ground forces with some success, but the rollback of ISIS's territorial gains still has a long way to go. What will the next 25 years bring? Air attacks have become a central element of U.S. involvement in Iraq and the broader Middle East. When we are changing regimes, we attack governments and civil society. When we are suppressing terrorism, we attack individuals and cells. When we are supporting partner militaries, 
we provide close air support to their troops. So where our policy goes, there will go the air campaign. Hit-to-kill ballistic missile defense is the ultimate precision guidance challenge. Many elements of a defense must come together to achieve a long-range intercept. One of the most important and difficult parts is known as mid-course discrimination. After a ballistic missile launches, its engines burn hot and can be detected by infrared satellites. Outside the Earth's atmosphere, the missile engines burn out and it reaches its peak velocity. At this point, the missile's payload, a warhead, usually separates from the rest of the body. The warhead is also accompanied by the flying junk pile of debris created by launching a missile, as well as by decoys or other countermeasures designed to complicate the missile defense job. All of these objects move together through space as part of a threat cloud. So for a missile defense system to successfully destroy the warhead, its various sensors must first discriminate it from among the various other parts of the cloud. The key to successful discrimination is the sensor architecture. Sea and land-based radars provide one picture of the threat cloud. Lower frequency radars are able to track the threat cloud but have trouble distinguishing within it. Once cued, higher frequency or X-band radars provide much sharper images of the objects within the cloud. But radars are limited by their vantage point and by their technology. Multiple phenomenologies can provide a more complete rendering and classification. Air or space-based sensors provide still other perspectives with greater persistence, potentially allowing for birth-to-death tracking. And infrared sensors show not just objects but their heat signature, especially low-orbit satellites looking sideways, comparing the objects against the coldness of space. Currently, U.S. Homeland Missile Defense is dependent upon only terrestrial radars. This places a large burden on the sensor network and makes it harder to identify the objects. That in turn means that the defender has to engage more of the objects in the cloud so as not to miss the warhead, either by firing more interceptors or multiple kill vehicles atop a single one. After the interceptors are launched, they receive imagery of the threat cloud, which algorithms compare to a threat database to help pick which objects should be engaged. All this is fused with the kill vehicle's own observations using onboard sensors to make the final determination for intercept. Finally, they maneuver into position to collide with the several targets that could be a warhead. The discrimination challenge is hard, but not insurmountable. An efficient and robust discrimination system should include a mix of sensors with different technologies from different domains on land, sea, air, and space. While much of the world focuses on terrorism in the Middle East, violent extremist groups have expanded their ambitions and reach in Africa as well. In the Western Sahel, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb has produced or inspired a proliferation of extremist groups that continue to destabilize the region. In the areas around Lake Chad, Boko Haram, with its origins in northeast Nigeria, has left tens of thousands of civilians dead and displaced almost three million people. The security vacuum in Libya and the presence of Islamic State and Al-Qaeda deepen the risks to the Sahel region. There has been a lot of turmoil and trouble with these radical elements, which you find in this arc of instability from North Africa to Afghanistan. 
Military intervention by regional forces, France and the UN, have weakened these groups and reclaimed territories they once held. But the drivers of militancy and the complex social, economic and political environment that fuels these groups remain very much intact. Unless this understructure of vulnerability and criminality is addressed, extremist violence will remain an enduring threat to the region. Space is a critical enabler for military operations and an increasingly important domain of modern warfare. But operating in space is expensive. What would it mean for the U.S. military if costs were reduced significantly? Start one, zero. Disruptive breakthroughs that could significantly reduce the cost of access to space may come in many forms. One of the most pursued methods for reducing the cost of access to space is making launch vehicles less expensive. Building launch vehicles in much greater quantities can enable efficiencies in the manufacturing process. But quantity alone is unlikely to yield order of magnitude reductions in costs. Novel forms of propulsion could also one day reduce costs. But perhaps the most promising disruption is reusability. If a launch vehicle can be reused 10 times with minimal maintenance between flights, it could, in theory, reduce the effective vehicle cost by roughly an order of magnitude. Repairing or reusing satellites in space through on-orbit servicing could also reduce the cost of access to space. Instead of launching a 5,000-kilogram satellite to field a new space capability, one could launch a 500-kilogram payload to upgrade an existing satellite. A significant reduction in the cost of access to space could enable new military space missions that are not feasible at current costs. Placing conventional weapons in orbit to strike targets on Earth has been explored in the past. One limitation has been the cost of launching the large number of satellites that would be needed to have a similar capability as a fleet of ground-based long-range missiles. An even larger constellation of satellites would be needed for a boost-phase kinetic missile interceptor system. Because the kill vehicle required for a missile intercept is more technologically complex, launch costs are a smaller share of the total cost. A space-based missile interceptor system could also be adapted to strike an adversary's satellites or to defend against anti-satellite missiles launched at friendly satellites. Lower launch costs could also enable space transportation and logistics for critical military operations. A crewed vehicle system similar to what commercial firms are developing for space tourism could be adapted by the military to deliver small numbers of special operations forces or critical supplies to virtually any location on Earth within 30 to 45 minutes. Many of the disruptions that could reduce the cost of access to space and enable new missions, architectures, and operations for the U.S. military could also provide the same advantages to potential adversaries. Other nations could be incentivized to field space-based systems for ground attack, missile defense, and anti-satellite missions, whether or not the United States pursues such systems. A significant reduction in the cost of launch vehicles in particular could mean a reduction in the cost of long-range missiles, potentially leading to a rapid and uncontrolled proliferation. Significant cost reductions are not likely until space launch becomes more of a commercial rather than a government activity. But the government has a big role to play. The government can cede key market areas by paying for and sharing risky early R&D on disruptive technologies and helping commercial companies develop common standards so that a competitive commercial ecosystem emerges. The government can help commercial space grow by purchasing more services rather than using only its own version of these capabilities. Government can be the anchor customer for many of the emerging disruptive commercial technologies on the horizon. 
Also, the government can make getting to space easier by simplifying government approvals and striking a careful balance to maintain the United States' lead in commercial space while protecting national security. The emergence of a robust commercial space market and the promise and peril it offers will take time to fully develop, but the nation that shapes this future is likely to benefit the most. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. After more than three years of civil war, Syria is home to the world's largest, most complex, and dangerous human crisis. More than 160,000 people have died. The Assad regime is the driver. It violently targets civilians. Armed militant groups are guilty as well. More than 9.5 million Syrians have been forced from their homes, nearly half the population. This includes three million refugees who have fled to Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey, and Iraq, overburdening these neighbors and threatening instability. There is no political settlement or military victory in sight. As the human crisis worsens, Syria has also become a haven for armed Islamist extremists. This has opened the door for ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, to launch its armed invasion of Iraq. Each month, 100,000 new Syrian refugees spill into the region. There are 6 million people displaced inside Syria. They struggle to find security, medical care, and housing, and half are not reachable. A generation of children are without schooling, vulnerable, traumatized, and ill. The Assad regime blocks safe delivery of humanitarian relief in defiance of the UN Security Council. Hundreds of armed factions impede relief. But countless Syrian and international personnel risk their lives daily to deliver assistance. Many have been killed or wounded. The Assad regime also routinely targets health workers and facilities. Many medical professionals have been killed or detained. Half of Syria's doctors have left the country, and a large portion of hospitals and clinics have stopped functioning. The public health consequences are profound disrupted immunizations for polio, measles, and meningitis, a breakdown of care for diabetes, cancer, and hypertension, complications in childbirth. And Syria is now an exporter of polio, contributing to a global polio emergency. The United States has generously contributed more than $2 billion in relief, but the world's response still falls far short, and there is a danger of fatigue. Syria's colossal human disaster has triggered a crisis of conscience. There are no easy answers, just questions about what can be done, short of a resolution of the war itself. Arm the moderate opposition. Expand cross-border delivery, ignoring the Assad regime's objections. Pursue humanitarian interventions, including no-fly zones. Prosecute the Assad regime for war crimes. Expand assistance to stabilize Lebanon and Jordan. How to cope with the humanitarian fallout from an ISIS proto-state that is violently anti-Western and now controls large parts of Syria and Iraq. 
As the debate unfolds, we will struggle for many years to come with the legacy of serious human crisis, mass suffering, widespread societal damage, a possible lost generation, and grave new security threats affecting Syria and its neighbors alike. Good afternoon and welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. You are here for an event on the rise of nutrition. We're gonna be talking about global nutrition and particularly the role of the US government. So that's going to include talking about interagency coordination, how they can better leverage impact, as well as funding, hot topic this week, and the tremendous return on investment that there is with nutrition programming and yes, we are also going to talk about what this might all look like under the Trump administration. Many of you in this room are not gonna disagree with me when I say that nutrition is a pillar of development. You know, whether you're talking about infectious diseases, food security, or education, nutrition is crucial to economic prosperity and growth. In fact, if you're unaware of this, I find it quite interesting, 12 of the 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals include nutrition indicators. And that really reflect, reflects nutrition's central role across a spectrum of key development outcomes. Yet, only 1% of foreign aid is allocated to basic nutrition. You know, for the past two years, I just hit my anniversary. I've been here at CSIS leading our global food security work. And a lot of people ask me sort of what my key priority areas are. And I've always said that one of those has been nutrition, because to me, nutrition and agriculture development are inexorably linked. And on a personal level, I'm really excited that we're launching a paper and that we're having this event that's very specific on the power of nutrition. I'd like to take a moment and thank Carol Conregan, who's a consultant who wrote the report that hopefully you grabbed on your way in today called Staying Power. And you know, when we did this report, we wanted to look very specifically at the US government's global coordination, I always get this tongue-tied, the US government's global nutrition coordination plan. But when you look at this, I don't want you to overlook chapter one, which is surprisingly my favorite chapter because it sort of goes over the global nutrition movement over the last decade. So it's a great resource for those of you who may be new to nutrition. It's a great reminder for those of you who have been in this field for some time. Because when you look back over the last decade or so, I would call kind of a nutrition revival has happened. And there's been this surge of attention and evidence. So everything from the World Health Organization in 2006, when it revisited its global health, um, sorry, it's revisited its child growth standards, you know, all the way to the Lancet series of 2008 and 2013, which many of you are probably familiar with, where it really showed groundbreaking scientific evidence around the first thousand days, but also around the linkages between malnutrition and the global burden of disease. There's also, of course, the Copenhagen consensus in 2012 that really explained the economics between behind nutrition investments. And then as many of you know, in 2015, the United Nations General Assembly actually pledged to end all forms of malnutrition by 2030. 
A tall order, but impressive and laudable. So what's the US government's role in all of this? You know, it's nothing new in the sense of that the US government has been a leader in global nutrition for a long time. You look back from the 1950s through things like Food for Peace, so food aid has been given globally. And then you look at things like Feed the Future that was launched in 2010. And, you know, nutrition was right at the center of that. One of its top two goals is one of them is, is the reduction of stunting. And you even look at programs like the McGovern Dole International Food for Education and Child Nutrition Program worldwide that's providing nutritious school meals, and that's through the USDA. The McGovern Dole um, program, for example, has really strong bipartisan support, but it's one of many programs that's under threat under the new administration's budget. So the Global Nutrition Coordination Plan, I'm not going to go into a lot of depth on that because Ann Penniston, who I'll introduce in a minute, um, is going to talk about that. But one thing that struck me about this, being a former U.S. government employee myself, is that this wasn't a mandate. This wasn't an initiative. This was a voluntary effort by people who were committed to nutrition to say, how can we better coordinate our efforts across agencies? And it's a really good example of collaboration for mutual learning, for getting ages, agencies out of their silos. And any of you here means you're interested in US government coordination and policy in some way. You know how difficult that can be. So it gave an opportunity for technical expertise, such as USAID or MCC, to coordinate with people like at Peace Corps or FDA or NIH. And it's really something that other technical domains could consider emulating. It's a little too soon to tell to see how it's going to work. It was just launched last year. We kind of realized that as we were going into the report, we're like, we should really do this like a year from now. But we still wanted to dig in a little bit deeper and see how the progress was going. And again, Anne will elaborate this a little bit more in her opening remarks. You know, this week I went to CARES National Conference, and the theme at their conference was now more than ever. And it's such a great choice of words that I'm just going to borrow it. So thank you, CARE, without asking. <laughs> but it's such a good phrase, now more than ever, because if you think about it, right now there's this mo momentum around nutrition within USAID, within the US government. There certainly has for some time within the international community. And now more than ever, we really need to sustain this momentum. But that means we need to understand and we need to be able to make the case in both business terms and economic terms. It means we need to show evidence of its importance and its economic value, particularly at a time when policymakers are trying to determine the best way that we can maximize our tax dollars. And we're going to learn from our experts today of how investing in nutrition can advance our U.S. interest and how nutrition can promote health and wealth and political stability. So we're going to start with Ann Penniston, when I can get my notes together. <laughs> there we go. Anne is the Chief of Nutrition and Environmental Health Division in the Global Health Bureau at USAID. Anne is both a clinician, a researcher, and a program manager. She is a nurse practitioner, but she has sent, spent decades living overseas and decades working on USAID programs and across the whole public health spectrum. So while she certainly understands the nutrition space, she also understands domestic public health as well as public health issues in terms of family planning, maternal and child health, and HIV AIDS. We are very grateful that she has been a collaborator with us for our report from the beginning, and that she knows more than anyone about how this global coordination plan is progressing and what we can expect for it in the years to come. Anne.
Thank you, Kimberly. Good afternoon, everyone. And thank you, Kimberly, and thank you, CSIS, for giving me an opportunity to deliver a few remarks about the tongue twister U.S. government Global Nutrition Coordination Plan, even though I have to stumble over it a little bit. Frankly, we just call it the plan among us. I'm really honored to be here representing my hardworking, dedicated interagency colleagues from 11 different departments and agencies who jointly conceived and developed the plan. And it took us about three years. That's how hardworking and dedicated we were and how committed we were to making sure that our product would be the best that we could have. You may be aware that UNICEF and WHO recently released the latest data on the status of malnutrition around the world. There are now 155 million children under five who are chronically malnourished, in other words, stunted, and 52 million children who suffer from wasting or acute malnutrition. A child suffering from severe acute malnutrition is nine times more likely to die from common infections. Severe acute malnutrition causes an estimated one to two million preventable child deaths every year. And each year, chronic malnutrition costs the global economy over $3 trillion as a result of healthcare costs and lost productivity. As the 2017 World Bank report illustrated, every dollar invested in nutrition interventions would yield an estimated four to $35 in economic return. Investing in nutrition therefore gives us one of the highest returns on investment of any development activity. We in the U.S. well recognize that well-nourished populations contribute productively to national development and economic security. And to support these efforts, the U.S. has been the largest donor of nutrition programs around the world. Our programs have included human nutrition research, nutrition information systems, food safety, food fortification, breastfeeding promotion, infant and young child feeding, working with uh, agriculturalists on nutrient-rich agricultural value chains, emergency food assistance, and much more. So in June of 2013, at the Nutrition for Growth event in London, the then USAID Administrator, Dr. Raj Shah, made several commitments that included financial and non-financial pledges. Two of the commitments were, first of all, that USAID would develop an agency-wide multi-sectoral nutrition strategy, and two, that the US government would also coordinate better under a unified strategy or plan. USAID completed its strategy in 2014, and the US Global Nutrition Coordination Plan was completed and released last June. So the plan describes the US government agency's respective strengths in a whole of government approach to global nutrition, using existing funding and reporting channels to enhance our collective impact on global nutrition outcomes. As I said, the plan was written by nutrition experts from 11 departments and agencies who worked collaboratively to produce the plan. And then there was a group of senior officials from each agency who oversaw its development and then led the final approval process within each agency. A very long, long process, as you can imagine. From the beginning, the senior officials and members of the technical writing group were very clear about what the plan was and what it was not. 
It was not a new initiative with new funding or new reporting channels. It was not a change in individual agency mandates or areas of work, but it was a means to coordinate nutrition actions using best practices and scientific evidence generated across agencies in both domestic and international programs to increase the impact of our work in global nutrition. The plan identifies opportunities to optimize our efforts in a coordinated way that integrates the importance of nutrition and food security into key aspects of health promotion, disease prevention and treatment, as well as in agriculture and food security. To implement the plan, the participating agencies have established a structure and process uh, through sub-technical working groups that focus on a set of topics in which multiple agencies have shared interests. So the details may differ according to the particular issue, but the process to address nutrition-related uh, problems is the same. First of all, generate data, translate those data to safe, effective interventions and programs, understand the context and the enabling environment that will affect rollout and scale-up, and collaborate with continuous learning through strong monitoring and evaluation. As stewards of American investments in nutrition through our various agencies, this plan enables effective coordination and promotes efficiencies by leveraging our diverse areas of expertise to enhance outcomes and impact. So what have we accomplished so far in less than this first, even less than one year of implementation? We have successfully formed eight sub-technical working groups that cover a breadth of nutrition topics that include food security, uh, sorry, food safety, food fortification, nutrition information systems, nutrition and infectious diseases, including HIV, nutrition and non-communicable diseases, the first thousand days, nutrition implementation science, and the global food security strategy. We've selected chairs for the, the technical working group and as well as leads for the sub-technical working groups. Groups have been meeting every month, every six weeks or so, and each group has developed a terms of reference and set milestones for the first year and some, some beyond that. Groups are implementing activities in support of actions that were outlined in the plan. So for example, uh, on June 12th, the first 1,000 days subgroup will host a webinar for U.S. government country offices on infant and young child feeding best practices and examples, and we will be featuring uh, some country uh, examples as well as our own U.S. WIC program, Women, Infants, and Children. So this is a, a, a wonderful way to bring USAID work, uh, some of our CDC work, as well as um, uh, our WIC program together. In addition, we are actively working with individuals in U.S. government country offices to recommend how the plan can help improve how they organize and implement country-level programs. So, for example, in Uganda, we have uh, a couple of other activities going on between with USAID and CDC support. We're working with our country-level staff and the government of Uganda to strengthen nutrition information systems for routine surveillance and to identify micronutrient deficiencies to inform policies and uh, uh, policies around food fortification. 
And we're beginning to see some progress. Uh, with this, this plan, we're building on whole of government uh, successes that we've seen in Feed the Future and starting to see through the Global Food Security Act. In 2015 alone, the U.S. government reached nearly 18 million children globally with effective nutrition interventions. In 2016, USAID helped 82 million women and children access essential health services. And in some Feed the Future countries, USAID has helped reduce poverty and malnutrition by up to one-third. But while we're seeing successes, we also recognize the challenges and appreciate those that were highlighted in the CSIS report that's being launched today. One challenge noted is that the plan does not cover all of the global nutrition issues. For this plan, which was the first of its kind, we deliberately selected a core group of topics on which more than one agency uh, has expertise and interest with a focus on countries where more than one agency is operating. But we fully expect that the plan will evolve over time as we gain more experience and knowledge through these collaborations and as global nutrition evidence emerges from our ongoing research. The CSIS report also noted the challenge to implement a plan through largely voluntary efforts. And we understand those challenges very well. And we have noted the need that, to strengthen our formal structure and processes as we go forward. But my experience so far has been that we're already reaping the fruits of our labor. And being able to recognize success even at this stage just strengthens the foundation and gives us momentum to continue to build upon. So I want to thank you very much for allowing me to talk a little bit about this plan, which is maybe not available here today, but it's available at least on USAID's website. And I welcome you to download it, to read it, to follow our efforts, to give us construct constructive suggestions and help us to achieve our goal. And our overarching goal with this plan is to improve nutrition, to enhance health, productivity, and human potential. And I thank you very much, and I'm looking forward to the panel. Thank you so much, Anne. You can bet that we're going to continue to follow the progress of the plan and the working groups and, and hopefully continue to celebrate the, the progress and, and the impact that you're making. So with our panel, we're going to expand this conversation a little bit more. So beyond the, the government's coordination plan on nutrition, we really want to look at how much is the U.S. government investing? What does that mean in terms of the, the budget negotiations that are happening? And why is nutrition important? What does implementation look like? So we have a great group of us. Um, well, I guess all of us are great, but the great group of experts that are with us um, really looking at from both the implementing partner side to the advocacy side and then, of course, from the congressional side. So to start us off, we have Dr. Thomas Schetzel, and he's the director of nutrition at CARE. 
And he has, again, decades of experience in international public health and nutrition. What I really like about his background is that he works in both nutrition and agriculture. He has graduate degrees in agronomy as well as in applied nutrition. And his experience ranges from research to ME to designing programs, so he really has a, a depth of experience from a technical perspective on nutrition. And after that, we're going to hear from Lucy Sullivan, who's the executive director of Thousand Days. And if you're unfamiliar with Thousand Days, please go to their website. They, they have a, they're a great advocacy organization that, that helps us better understand the importance of that period from inception to the first two years and how during that time it is irreversible what happens in a child's life and how that can relate to economic growth. They're doing some great work there. And last, we have Ryan Evans, and Ryan is, um, works on the Hill as a legislative assistant for Senator Johnny Isaacson, a Republican from Georgia. We have this Georgia contention, which wasn't quite planned on the stage with uh, Tom being based in Atlanta. Um, Ryan works on uh, foreign affairs in her job. She also has a graduate degree in international development, and I can tell you firsthand that she's not one of those Hill staffers that has never left Washington, D.C. She traveled with me to Senegal last summer for congressional delegation that we took to look at Feed the Future programs in the field. So she has been to the field and been in rural areas and really understands how U.S. investments in agriculture and nutrition can make a difference. So we're going to start with Tom. Tom, from your perspective, as especially as an implementing partner, what are some of the big areas or global trends that you're watching in terms of nutrition and that you think we should know? Okay, thank you, Kimberly. Um, and thanks to CSIS for this opportunity. Um, I guess one big trend is uh, integrated in multi-sectoral programming. Um, you know, we're talking about the coordination across sectors, and uh, USAID has a multi-sectoral nutrition plan. At CARE, we, we find that nutrition is vital to all of our programs, whether it's nutrition or not, and that the nutrition-specific sort of interventions are more effective when they're coupled with some nutrition sensitive ones that, that sort of can you know, provide the resources that help people adopt the practices that are so important for the nutrition specific. Um, in terms of programming though, that can become a challenge. Um, you know, what, what we find is, is that it's often difficult to work across ministries at the community level and to get focus on nutrition. Um, thanks to organizations like, like Thousand Days and, and the Sun Movement, most countries now really have pretty good nutrition policies and, and strategies for implementing them, but the difficulty is implementing on the ground. The implementation isn't quite so pretty as, as, the, uh, as the policies themselves are. Um, actually, it's really encouraging to, to think about something like the Global Coordination Plan, because it's, it represents this whole government approach, and that's really what we're trying to achieve at the community level, is to work with different sectors and get a whole of government focus on nutrition at the community level, just as sort of ministries have signed off at the central level. Um, another trend actually really came out in, in your report. Um, you talked about decades. I, I've been doing nutrition programs since I still had all my hair, and um, I've never seen a moment like this. Um, we have, we've decided, we've got consensus that what we want to address is stunting. It's like a proxy for well-being or for uh, adult productivity or educational attainment. Um, we've had the Lancet series 
uh, that, that have helped us to get consensus on what to do and who to do it with. Um, we had, you know, the policies that I mentioned. And actually, in, in my experience, you said that I had a background in agriculture. I think that Feed the Future really changed the conversation about agriculture and nutrition. And that really people in agriculture are thinking about the fact that we, we need to do more than just increase incomes or just uh, produce more biomass. Agriculture needs to, it's about food, it needs to produce better nutrition. Um, I've not experienced a moment like this with all this momentum and so I can't resist because if we're going to talk about budgets and the like, it would, from our side at CARE, it would be tragic to take our foot off the pedal now when so many things and all this momentum over so many years has got us to this point we're about to maybe be able to make some serious impact. Um, and it would be a tragedy. While I've got the microphone, though, I'd, I'd like to add one more thing um, about the Global Coordination Plan. Um, at CARE, we like to say that uh, gender is non-negotiable in every single program we have, whether it's nutrition or elsewhere. So I went to the Global Coordination Report looking to see where gender fits in, and I found one mention in the document. Our biggest success in nutrition programming came with a, a DFAP in Bangladesh called Shahardo. And Shahardo was able to reduce stunting by a little over 2% a year for five years against a background of 0.6% reduction a year. And we really dug into the data on what caused this, and by far the biggest factor was women's empowerment. So I guess my plug would be that as, as this global coordination plan rolls out, to please give priority to nutrition. Uh, think things like women's time, women's decision-making, women's time poverty. Uh, this is really the key to, to having success with the technical interventions. That's all I have, thanks. Thank you, Tom. I really liked your point about how implementation isn't as pretty as policies. You can have great plans on paper, but that is, it's a very different story of how that's actually implemented in the field and in the community. Lucy. Great, so thank you everyone. Um, thank you CSIS and Kimberly for this wonderful invitation to be here with you all. Um, and thanks to everyone who's uh, watching online. Um, I, I'm, I'm so glad to be here. Um, I don't need to tell anyone um, in the audience or hopefully watching uh, how important the first thousand days are, but I, I, I do want to talk about how important investments in nutrition are. Um, they're irrevocable. Uh, they last a lifetime, and they are the foundation for all other uh, development investments. And we know that the cost of inaction uh, is immense. Uh, half of all deaths uh, of children under the age of five are due to malnutrition. Um, and then a quarter of the kids uh, around the world under the age five are, are stunted. And we know that that means that they don't grow to their full potential. Their bodies don't grow to their full potential. Their brains, most importantly, don't grow to their full potential. Um, and I think that's sort of when you talk about trends, you know, thinking about the, um, you know, the, the importance of nutrition to brain development and, and just what we're learning around that is, is really powerful. Um, because when a child is stunted, it means that before they enter the classroom door, they're already at a major disadvantage for learning uh, and skills and future earnings and the ability um, to provide for themselves and their family. Uh, so we know that investments in nutrition not only um, you know, help children reach their full potential, it leads to less poverty later in life and overall economic growth, and I'll get into that in a second. 
Um, but I'm, I'm really struck by the, the narrative recently around the investments in nutrition as being investments in gray matter infrastructure. And the person who I think coined that term was Akina Desina, uh, the, the president of the African Development Bank. Um, and, and others have really latched on to that. So the president of the World Bank, Jim Kim, uh, at a recent event, uh, talked about how in today's digital economy, we need a workforce uh, that has brain power, that has well-developed brains, strong executive function. Uh, creativity is really important, especially uh, as, as jobs move to automation. Um, so how do we expect employers to invest in a country when their workforce is not sufficiently developed physically, cognitively? Um, so governments that aren't investing in, in nutrition, they're not investing in their workforce, and they're really harming their future prospects in this sort of global economy, which will uh, increasingly be more and more of a knowledge economy. Uh, we, we know that we can't continue on this path, so we know we have to change things, and the, the, the best place to start, in addition to having fantastic policies and fantastic programs, is having the money to actually fund the work and the interventions. Uh, Kimberly, you mentioned the 1% the of ODA um, is, is spent on basic nutrition. Um, you know, that is unfortunately a shocking statistic, um, but just uh, half of 1% of health budgets in countries with high burdens of malnutrition are spent on nutrition-specific interventions. So also extremely low levels of investment from countries themselves. So we have to change this, uh, this paradigm. And we know this isn't just about uh, very poor countries. It's also about middle-income countries. So countries that have high stunting rates, middle-income countries like Indonesia, Guatemala, uh, Nigeria, India, um, and and that's where we need more leadership at country level, of course, to step up and, uh, and mobilize domestic resource mobilization. I got an applause for that. Um, so, so what's the game plan? So, number one, we have targets, right? So, in 2012, the World Health Assembly put out six global nutrition targets, um, and it was really the first time ever uh, that we had something to aim for. Um, so, you know, 40% reduction of stunting in children under five reductions in maternal anemia. So, you want to talk about gender? Let's talk about anemia. Um, increases to exclusive breastfeeding, reductions in wasting, um, reductions in low birth weight, and then um, reductions in overweight. Um, and so what we did uh, as an advocacy organization, we said, great, we've got these targets, now how do we reach them? Uh, so we need a game plan and we need a financing roadmap. So we work with the World Bank and Results for Development to, to, to really put together this, this financing roadmap, what we call the, the investment framework for at least four of the six targets. And what we found, and this was launched last year, you know, that the world needs to increase its investment uh, by $7 billion a year uh, to scale up nutrition-specific uh, interventions. So that might seem like a lot of money, $7 billion a year for the next 10 years. When you consider that the world spends $485 billion on fossil fuel subsidies, um, that's really pennies. Um, so that's, in fossil fuel subsidies, $1.3 billion a day um, on something that will not get us any closer to uh, more prosperous economies or uh, ending poverty. Um, so while this price tag seems large, we know that the benefits are incredibly um, uh, powerful. Uh, so that's, that was one of the things with this financing roadmap that we, that we wanted to do. Not only how much is it going to cost, where's the money going to come from, and what's it going to buy us. Uh, so we know that for, for this amount of money that we can, you, there could be economic benefits of about $420 billion. 
Um, and and that, is, that is incredibly powerful. Um, in fact, recent estimates in, in African countries and, and in Asian countries that um, um, you know, invest in nutrition, uh, the estimates are that $83 billion can be added to, to their economies just by um, reaching the, uh, the target for stunting. Um, you know, so these are big numbers, right? And, and, and the, because this is a big problem, but that's how powerful investing in nutrition are. On the human side of it, an investment of $7 billion per year um, can save almost 4 million lives. Um, and we can see 65 million fewer children stunted. So a big reduction in, in stunting. Um, the key is that we have to start now. We have to spur action now so that we don't have a next lost generation of, of children full of um, uh, really stunted uh, potential. Um, so the money is going to come from a variety of sources. So we know that it can't just be all about donors. We know that domestic resource mobilization is incredibly important. We know that households themselves uh, can can spend more on nutritious foods and um, and 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 the like and services and the like. Um, so we we believe that uh, that progress is possible. That even in this very constrained ODA environment, uh, that we have to push uh, for more uh, more funding. Uh, the donor investment. Um, to catalyze progress, to at least start getting things going, um, rests about uh, 1.2 billion a year. Which all of a sudden, when you break down that big seven billion dollar number into like, let's focus on the highest impact interventions, what we know we can scale now, um, you know that, and and what donors need to to pay for that number, all of a sudden becomes a lot more manageable. So what does this mean for the U.S. government, right? Um, so in the analysis, when, when we break that out and when we look at sort of the, the share that the U.S. government, um, you know, can contribute, that means um, really an additional $380 million a year. Again, it sounds like a really big number in the context of where we are and in this budget climate. But think about the impact that that can have. That can have a, an impact of 400,000 lives of children saved and 2.8 million uh, fewer stunted children. Um, and yes, this level of, uh, of investment is ambitious, but it's not unprecedented. Um, thanks to champions in Congress, quite frankly, and, and bipartisan champions in Congress, we've seen an increase to the nutrition sub-account within the global health program. So when we started looking at it in 2010, when that account was pulled out, it was about $75 million. And slowly but surely, thanks to, to Republican champions like Senator Isaacson's and others, um, you know, we've seen that grow to $125 million. Uh, so we're still a ways away from where we want to be, where we need to be, um, in terms of, a, a, of an investment level from the U.S. government. Uh, but I'm encouraged, uh, certainly by you know by by the work that USAID has done, the interagency has done with this whole of government coordination plan, with the the, the support that we've gotten uh, from Republican champions. Um, and you know what? For not a lot of money, the U.S. government can have a lot of impact on this problem. Um, you know, this is. This is a terrific opportunity. You want to talk about a business opportunity for the Trump administration, the art of the deal? Nutrition. Nutrition for not a lot of money. You can get a lot in return. So I'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Ryan, help us look at this through a congressional lens. So how do you look at nutrition in terms of foreign policy? And what's the role of Congress in terms of future funding? Uh, 
really great question, and, and thank you, Kimberly, for inviting me to be a part of this very distinguished panel. It's a little intimidating, I'm not going to lie. Um, but also, uh, thanks to CSIS for hosting this. You know, how do we make the decision to invest in nutrition? It, it's, um, you know, I don't, I don't know how to answer that discreetly. I mean, I, I think uh, one of the things that Senator Isaacson uh, thinks about when he looks at, at development as a whole is you have to look at it from many different perspectives. It, it is part of our national security um, interests. It is part of our economic interests. You know, 95% of the world's markets are outside of the United States. And so we need to look further afield to find out um, you know, where we can find places for our products and our ideas. Um, and so it, it, those two things go together, but you can't do a lot of those investments from the, you can't have those from the private sector if you don't have healthy, educated, productive workforces, as, as Lucy so eloquently um, illustrated for us. So in Congress, how do we come to these decisions? Well, it takes a lot of input from implementers, from administrations, and from advocates to really help educate us and um, understand the issues on the ground as we you know, try to figure out legislative um, agendas as well as perform oversight over these programs as well. Um, so one of the, I guess the key touch point here for me has been working on the Global Food Security Act, which we finally got across the finish line last Congress. Um, it took nine years, I think, to, to do that. Um, but, but part and parcel of that was really trying to get nutrition as a key um, foundational element of, of that bill. And, and we were successful in doing that. And so now it comes to us to, to really look at that return on investment. Go back and verify the results that that uh, folks are are bringing to us, and and go see it in the field, um, as I got to do last summer, and so, um, and as my boss has done in previous trips. So, you know, there there are a whole bunch of factors that go into how do we make these decisions, and one of those things is the is the president's budget request, and um, it, it is always a request. And Congress, at the end of the day, does have the power of the purse, and and we'll take a look at all of that. And and there are some things that, from our perspective, are good things in that budget. Um, there are other things that we think we need to have be well targeted um, that really do fit in with our national security interests. And, and we're going to have a robust debate about that, I think. Um, you know, we're in our appropriations process right now, um, taking input from, from groups like CARE in a thousand days and, and so many other groups um, and, and really getting an understanding of, of where people are um, on these issues, not, and not just from these groups, but from our constituents too. There's a lot of input that comes from our home states, either for or against particular funding. And so we're gonna take all of that into consideration. Um, I, I, think, I think it'll be an interesting process moving forward. I can't predict what it will look like. Um, I've gotten out of that business. Um, and, and just trying to um, see where we go from here. But, but I think at the end of the day, we'll, you know, we'll look at the evidence, we'll see where it, where it takes us, and, and there are advocates um, in Congress on these issues. Um, you know, and I work with many of them. One question I have for you, Ryan, since you brought up constituents, is, you know, we, there is a lot of support on the Hill. We say this often, but we really mean it in terms of, of um, bipartisan 
bipartisan support. She mentioned the Global Food Security Act. All of you in the room kind of nodding your head. I'm assuming you know what that's about. And we'd be in a very different place today if that hadn't passed last summer. So I, I want to hear a little bit more about constituents because, you know, let's talk about America first, right? I mean, that is what our president um, would like to do. And so why should Americans care about what's happening in, in other places? Why should Americans care about using their tax dollars to help someone in another country? You know, what is your boss, who is a great champion on this, um, what does he say to those constituents? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And, and he always reminds people that, that our in international affairs funding is 1%, if not a little bit less than that, of our overall uh, spending. Um, and, and it helps us in so many different ways. So if you're investing in places, whether it's through economic um, growth and development opportunities or good governance, rule of law issues, or through um, health and education programming, what you're doing is helping, you're creating an enabling environment for um, stable societies, um, hopefully uh, bringing peace to those areas. And that, that's a benefit for us. It means that we're not spending that money on defense um, spending. Um, we're looking to open up markets for American workers so that their products can go places. Um, you know, it, it has a strong return on investment. It is part of our overall strategy when it comes to national security and economic interests. And I think a lot of people are sometimes surprised to find out that international affairs funding is is so such a small piece of the of the pie um, and and that um, you know I think we have to do more to talk about that um, but I don't know if that answers your question but that, that's that's usually where we are but we, we have very engaged constituency on a lot of these issues yeah for sure fantastic so you know both domestically and internationally this um, White House budget announced yesterday proposes some pretty dramatic and dangerous cuts to nutrition across the board. So, Lucy, you know, you mentioned some numbers, and so the FY18 request for budget, again, it's a request, um, is $79 million, and that's 37% lower than this year's budget. And you put that in a great perspective of, of how that's really pennies on the dollar. I mean, I know USAID projects that are well more than $79 million. And so to think about that for all of global nutrition is, is difficult. So Lucy, you gave a lot of great arguments of, of why we should invest more, and you've looked into this for a long time. But you know, if you had two minutes in a room with someone from the Trump administration, or also policymakers on the Hill that are, they're gonna be going through these negotiation battles. You know, what are the key messages when you don't have a lot of time that you could tell people in the audience who, who do that similar work of why 79 million is not enough? So um, the, the return on investments of nutrition um, is um, among the highest in any uh, development category. Uh, so I think I would I would definitely start there. Um, the U.S. government can make a big impact for not a lot of money. Uh, this is I think th this is an opportunity. This is a legacy opportunity for someone uh, in the administration in this administration to to take this on and really say you know what I'm going to champion this because for too long this has been a neglected issue. We have been under-investing. So I think that, you know, appealing to, to, to that sense of, of wanting to, to, to leave an impact, to, to make your mark. 
Um, the other thing is, is that you know we've got um, we've got partners that are willing to step up. We've got countries that are willing to step up. There's you know over 59, I think it's maybe even over 60 countries now in the Sun Movement, in the Scaling Up Nutrition Movement. These these countries have decided to make nutrition a priority themselves, and they know they have to invest more. We have the World Bank, we have the African Development Bank, we have other donors that are also willing to to, to step up, but the U.S. needs to lead. The U.S. needs to lead because it, that's what it does so well. And when the U.S. leads, the world tends to follow. And so this is also a leadership opportunity for the Trump administration for, for policymakers. Tom, um, Bill Gates in his annual letter focused a lot on nutrition. And he said that nutrition is one of the biggest missed opportunities in global health. Do you agree? And if so, why? <laughs> Well, yeah, I agree. <laughs> well, you know, there's many ways to answer that, but one that immediately comes to my mind is, is that we, we have so many contacts with these kids and we're not, we're not trying to do anything about nutrition. We're trying to do something about malaria. We're trying to do something about uh, pneumonia, but actually during that same contact, we could be working with the mom about how do you feed this kid? Um, and, and what's wrong and what should you be looking for and uh, all these opportunities that we lose um, even when we get to treatment approaches for malnutrition, which as we heard earlier with this high risk of death, it's a necessary thing, but actually we can also work with the mom to help her understand how to keep this from happening again. Um, instead of sort of treating and treating and treating, we can treat and help that child never to need treating a second time. Um, I think one more that I'd add, if you'll give me the time, is that it's the amount of money. Um, the nutrition budgets, as we heard, are so small in comparison to health budgets. And yet, as you look at child survival, nutrition, malnutrition is responsible for such a high percentage of child death. It's, things are sort of inverted in terms of what the need is and what the expenditures are. Yeah, we call it the 45-1% conundrum. 45% deaths, but yet 1% of funding goes to nutrition and dealing with the mortality, the high mortality that malnutrition brings about. There's, um, if, if you follow the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition has a great analysis on the budget that's come out. So if this topic interests you, which I assume it does because you're here today with us, um, I highly suggest you look at this. There's a great, um, on page 15, it's full analysis, the global health funding, it has a really simple table for those of us that aren't deeply steeped in budgets or global health like myself. But you see, for example, you know, in, in FY18, we spent $4.32 in PEPFAR in our HIV AIDS programs. And I am not saying that's not important, but 4.32 billion. But it also goes through to talk about how much we spend on malaria and tuberculosis and, you know, again, nutrition, 125 million. And that's after a lot of work and support to even get it up to that. So it's quite interesting. I want to turn to the audience because we have uh, a lot of experts in the room. And, and I know that we have from students to people who've worked on the Hill on this. And I'd really like to, to see what your thoughts are on this as well as what questions you have for our panelists. So please raise your hand if you have a question. Um, we'll have the microphones come around. I'll ask that you please state your name and, and your organization um, so that our live webcast also knows who's speaking. We have one right here in the front that we can go ahead and bring the microphone up to. And you can address your question to someone specifically on the panel or broadly. And we'll take three at a time. 
Go ahead. Good morning, or afternoon, rather. My name is Diana Cayley. I'm an advisor of food security and monitoring, evaluation, and learning at Crown Agents USA. I did my doctoral dissertation research in Uganda, where, as we mentioned before, um, thank you, that there's a great um, nutrition plan there. But the big problem that I saw in my research uh, with IFPRI, the International Food Policy Research Institute, um, I was working at urban slums there, and no one there had seen anything that was implemented from the nutrition plan. So I appreciate that Thomas brought this up. So my question to the panelists is, where are our best and most strategic points of entry to turn well-written and well-thought-out policy into action, given that we're constrained by, like we said, potentially by the budget, um, in light of the new coordination plan? Sort of how do, we, how do we find those points of entry? Thank you. Excellent. Other questions? Yeah, Emmy. Hi, Emmy Simmons from the Global Panel on Agriculture and Food Systems for Nutrition. And my question is sort of saying, lauding all of you for saying, yes, the momentum is there now, and now is the time to capitalize on it. But perhaps pushing a little bit more, not just on stunting, not just on undernutrition, but what I see as a much more global problem of malnutrition, which includes o overweight and obesity, in which the US is quite a leader, and as well as micronutrient malnutrition, which you mentioned very briefly, Lucy. But I would like to just push this toward the political question then. Do we in the U.S. actually have in interest, human health interests, that coincide with those of partners in the developing world? Not just on stunting, but on using nutrition as a mechanism for actually developing that gray matter infrastructure, but for developing the capacity of, of children to really perform in what is going to be a very challenging 21st century economy? Great question. In the back. So I'm Rajil Pandya Loach with IFBRI, and uh, I have a comment, comma, question. I just returned last night from India, where I moderated a session on nutrition at the African Development Bank's annual meeting. And that was an incredible session for the African Development Bank to have a session on nutrition. Five ministers of finance or budget or planning made unplanned interventions from the floor, talking about their commitments or their interest or how, how uh, some of the issues they face. So a question, come com a question for the panel as well as for Anne, if she's willing to answer, would be how do we change the game so that we're bringing the finance people on board. And this is partly Lucy's question. What will entice them? Because they see a different picture than we see from the nutrition side. And how do we build that critical mass up of people in the finance and the planning sectors to put in the investment over the longer term? And when Anne mentioned the whole of government approach and what it took to do that here, I wonder whether we can explore a whole-of-government approach in several of these key countries, and what would it take to get to that whole-of-government approach, not just the finance, not just the orphan nutrition sort of policy people, but kind of getting to whole-of-government approach. Are there lessons from the U.S. to learn for that approach? Thank you. Excellent, excellent questions. Thank you so much. Tom, let's start with you. There were a couple there that you could answer. Well, I'll go, go, go to that first one and share some of our experience. What we've had some, some good results with is working at, at lower administrative levels and, and 
playing a convening role where we bring representatives from several sectors, maybe from private sector, and have monthly planning meetings that are sort of cross-sectoral um, so that then everybody goes back out and implements sort of in their own world, um, but they all have in mind this collective thing that we're trying to do for nutrition in, in that area. Um, we've had some success with that and we're trying to replicate that. I don't know if others have suggestions. Not on that first question. Um, I have to think about that. It was an excellent question. So I'm going to have to think about that one a little bit more. Um, Emmy, thank you for your question. Um, you know, sort of the multiple forms of malnutrition and how we how we think about that and what the U.S. government perspective is, um, you know, I think is is something that we have to start really tackling seriously. Diet, what we eat, is the number one cause of premature death around the world, right? Not just um, you know in, in in developed countries all over the world. Uh, chronic diseases are on the rise in developing countries, I mean, massively on the rise. Um, and whether you're talking about overweight, obesity, diet-related, chronic diseases, undernutrition, micronutrient malnutrition, what all those have in common, uh, when you look for the common denominator, it's uh, a diet that really fails to give, um, give us the, the nutrition that we need to be healthy. Um, you know, lessons learned in terms of the U.S., in terms of its unfortunate leadership on overweight obesity. Um, you know, we, we started taking a look at this problem here in the U.S. thousand days, and, you know, from our perspective, the, the evidence is there that you, you focus on the first thousand days if you want to, to, to prevent some of the problems that we're seeing, um, you know, in, in an adolescence here, in, in, in adults in terms of overweight obesity and, you know, type 2 diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because uh, we, we, we don't take micronutrient malnutrition seriously enough here in the U.S. Uh, about a quarter of uh, infants of uh, one year of age um, are actually deficient in iron. Um, so it's pretty serious here, and given that we have high, high levels of, of food insecurity here. So I think there's, there's some learning that, that we can probably, um, you know, share um, around what, what to do. Um, you know, learning from other countries into the U.S. Um, on Rajul's terrific question, um, how do we get this into finance ministers? Believe me, we are, we are trying. I think that, that we have a rock-solid economic uh, case. Uh, I think positioning this as a, an investment in how you, in, in a future economy, um, you know, and how you build the workforce for the future, um, talking about this in terms of uh, stunting is a constraint and malnutrition writ large and even diet-related chronic diseases, uh, a constraint to economic growth um, and um, and a few countries, of course, have, have realized that. And you have to look at this, you know, we talk about infrastructure and, and in the president's budget, of course, there's, there's a big uh, push for, for infrastructure spending. Investing in children's nutrition is infrastructure spending. It's a different kind of infrastructure and the payoff is a lot further down the road, but I think that's the kind of language and the kind of narrative we need to, to start pushing on. And as you mentioned earlier, Lucy, that's the kind of narrative that we see the World Bank president using, you know, and so I think that can also be a way to get finance um, people engaged so that you have someone like in that kind of leadership role that's pushing this to that degree, which is fantastic. Tom, is there any other points that you wanted to make uh, on, on the, in the sense of on the ground in terms of engaging finance ministers or also with the points of working with local governments and the consideration, which I think is a really interesting point of, of trying to help their whole of government process? I don't really have any answers, but I have some thoughts. Um, you know, um, there's a lot that we can do, but I think that we need to find champions in these countries 
that are the ones who make these arguments and do this convincing. And so maybe our job is to really do a good job of searching for those champions who are ready to take that leadership and to bring their own government and their own leaders to this discussion. Turn back to the audience. Other questions? Yes, in the back there. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, Larry Schaefer with Schaefer Global Management and Fresh Community Holdings Corporation. Where we approach this issue is from production. Um, so how do we define, working with all of the think tanks and all of these influencers, how can we define this catchphrase everybody's throwing around, sustainable agriculture? Can we truly actually come up with some best practices, some biz business industry standards? My largest concern is that America is going to export its version of agriculture, big ag, to Africa, to some of these developing countries that don't know any better. Because the country leaders are going to see the big dollars that the lobbyists and other people that are supporting these big industry people come their way, sort of like, I don't know if anybody's supportive of China, but sort of like China has done in some of these places. Um, that's the largest scare I have. So if we can define what sustainable agriculture is, so it is not reliant on any fossil fuels usage, it's not reliant on any chemical usage, it's not reliant on potentially vulnerability to climate change. If we can provide that structure in defining sustainable agriculture to help influence the policymakers in the decisions they make of where the funds go, and what programs the funds support. It would be outstanding. Thank you so much. Yes, Dan, go ahead. P speak loudly, we have a party happening next door. Hi, my name is Dan Silverstein. Uh, I'm a private sector and capital markets strategic Please stand up, Dan, just for the live webcast, thanks. Stand up? Yeah, yeah thank I you. Okay, sorry, um, a private sector advisor. I'm also, uh, a member of the uh, Friedman School's Tough Nutrition Council. And so uh, we talk about um, these issues all the time. And, and one of the uh, areas that uh, is that there's, I'm, I'm missing a piece. And it, it is, it's what you were talking about, and it has to do with the funding part. It seems to me when you talk about uh, global health getting so much funding and nutrition getting none, what you're telling me is that political, what, what I think is, political will is uh, the derivative that goes into the funding. For some reason, the policymakers find themselves gravitating towards funding what serves the needs of um, of themselves or their constituents. And somehow this, the nutrition story uh, doesn't get told w with the same articulation. Uh, David Lambert used to say that nutrition doesn't have a home. Agriculture has a home and health has a home, but nutrition doesn't have a home. And I know he would be really excited to hear this conversation and to talk about how you create the political will that goes, that finds its way through the public policy system and that comes out the other end as a budgetary allocation. Do, do you have, so the question is, do you have insights into that? Am I right or wrong? Thank you so much. Other questions? Let's go to Ellen right up here. Because I know you have a question, something related to the Hill, right, Ellen? No, not at all, actually, but that's interesting. Hi, Ellen Levinson. Um, I'm, I'm a consultant, and I've worked in agriculture food security for a long time. But one of my questions, and, and I mean some, a thought question, is, you know, really, 
if we think about our food supply globally, 1,000 days is a very focused area and you have some measurements. Uh, there are measurements in the sustainable development goals, but uh, and you know, non-communicable diseases we were talking about and the impact of, of nutrition on it. But, but really, where is the money? The money is in the food industry. And, and the food industry listens to consumers and they are really changing. And I think nobody's giving that credit here. And, and really, I think I see a nexus of change coming when they adopt standards and benchmarks in order to identify how they can move forward to meet, like here, you, you hear a lot, and a lot of the companies are, lowering sugar and fat and, and salt in their food, um, in their products. You know, they're trying to come up with more nutritious. They're, they're listening to the consumer, and they're listening to the global uh, dialogue. But, but I think that um, they also need to find their benchmarks, just like we all do. And, and that is always the challenge with nutrition. I mean, I happen to have a master's in nutrition. Probably most people don't even know that about me because I've done so many other things. But the interesting thing is, there's, there, it's hard to just put your finger on one dot there. So I think that this movement, um, and Sun is part of it, and the business network part, and, and the, the World Bank's you know, also working on sustainability, including in nutrition. I think those issues, we really have to look at the business side. That's where it's gonna happen the most, across the globe. And, and not only, it's, it's what they're gonna do with their portfolios and how when they are building out in developing countries or when the food industries are starting there, where they go. Should it just be snack foods uh, that are, you know, nutritionally not dense at all, but, you know, calorically dense and have the wrong things in them or, or not? I mean, so there is an opportunity. But then that clashes against what we have here in the United States, which is, what do we call it, the nanny government, you know what I mean? Like, you know, government telling you what to eat and what not to eat. There's also that backlash, don't tell me what to eat. So I think it's a sensitive issue when we talk about nutrition because it's such an independent issue, you know, it's my choice. So we have a mix of issues there, but I think bottom line is, industry and the food industry is very interested in how they can improve their portfolios to meet today's consumer demands and also acknowledging and going in the direction of the fact that we have to improve nutrition and the double burden of nutrition. So I, I, I just like to throw that out because it hasn't come up. Thanks. Fantastic. Really great questions and comments. Thank you so much. Who wants to begin? There's a lot, a lot to unpack there. Tom, there was a lot of agriculture there. What do you think? I, I, I don't think I can define sustainable agriculture, but I maybe will add to your definition. Um, maybe we also want to think about that it's sustainable in the sense that it doesn't increase women's work and labor burden. Um, maybe it's sustainable in the sense that it provides the nutrients that people need to stay healthy uh, and uh, not just you know, more production. Um, one thing you know, to, you talked about your fears. I think one way to avoid that is to keep a focus on the smallholder farmer. Um, Large-scale commercialization is always going to go a certain direction wherever you go, just about. Um, but the smallholder farmer has particular needs and a particular, particular context that they have to sort of produce and survive in. And so agriculture that's appropriate for that male or female smallholder farmer is going to look very different than this exporting, you said, of, of the American idea of sustainable agriculture. 
Um, you know, for, for me, when I think of sustainable ag, I think of you know the three P's: people, planet, and profit. Um, and right now, one of those P's is very high in terms of the the profit, people, and planet, sort of taking a a, a, a back seat. Um, obviously, thousand days, we, we we very much focus on the on the people side of it. Um, but you know, it brings up for me the, the question of dietary diversity, which is incredibly important. Um, and we know that this is something that um, you know, in, in a lot of developing parts of the world, you know, people eat a very monotonous diet, and that is not good for their nutrition. It is not good for their health. So how do we, you know, step that up and integrate sort of the, the ag nutrition linkages that everyone, you know, talks about? You know, for me, that you know, that's where the 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 two things meet. Um, Thank you for invoking David Lambert. Um, so I, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan, and I, I can't, you know, I don't. Other than to share another David Lambert story, um, you know, when when we met, um, and he said, Thousand Days," it's such a brilliant concept, and he said, "On the steps of Capitol Hill, there needs to be a statue of a child and the word irreversible engraved on it." And that should be the daily reminder to members of Congress, to our policymakers, really not just here in the U.S., everywhere, what's at stake uh, when you don't invest in nutrition. I guess you set that up pretty well. Um, <laughs> I, well, I mean, to the question about political will and, and why does nutrition not seem to have as much attention as other issues, um, part of that has to do with congressional authorizations. Um, PEPFAR has been authorized a number of times by Congress, um, and, and if you have that, that leads to funding. Um, and everything else, it becomes kind of discretionary at, at that point and can be moved around. The other problem, I, I, and maybe it's not a problem, but the other thing with nutrition is it, where does it live? I mean, is it is it a global health issue? Is it a ag issue? Is it you know, whatever issue, it, it, it cuts across so many um, areas and it is that very foundational element that how do you find a place for it, it to live? And I think we have to be kind of innovative in our thinking um, as policymakers um, when we're talking about these issues and trying to find a way to to do things like CARE has done and, and put that lens on it. It's it's one of the reasons why, like I said before, the Global Food Security Act had nutrition as, as part of all of it, had small holder um, agriculture uh, as its focus, as well as putting a gender lens on on issues as well, so, um, so that you can look at, at these cross-sectoral issues through many different lenses. So I, I think that might be a part of the reason why um, the political will is seems to not be there. It's, it's hard to make that very kind of discreet, well, that's a nutrition issue. And, um, you know, I, I think maybe that that's the answer to that question. Mm. Uh, you know, on the, on the issues of the, the political will in, in a home for nutrition, um, it's like a perennial problem. Where is the home for nutrition? If you put it in health, then it has no influence on agriculture. You put it in agriculture, it has no influence on health. So many countries try to solve this by making it a cabinet level. Uh, <laughs> pardon me? Well, every little bit helps. <laughs> um, I don't mean to call the report a little bit, sorry. Um, but you put, it at, you put it at, say, the cabinet level, it has no line authority. So it's, uh, it's always being shifted around. It, I don't have a solution, but that is part of the problem. Then as far as political will in countries, when we talk about countries that have 40 to 50 percent 
stunting. It, malnutrition is not a visible problem. It's not something that comes on people's agenda because you, you drive around, you don't notice it. But at the same time, malnutrition isn't especially stunting. It's not something that you come in and cure. So you see some dramatic change that you can hold a policymaker accountable for, like it's not getting better. You come in and, and do something. Uh, it, 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 you prevent it and it takes a long time. So it, these are the challenges at trying to keep that interest in political will high. I think he's searching for a microphone. I just want to say that, that Rajul was, was what gave me the impetus to ask the question. I was thinking about it, but if African leaders are standing up, if you're at a conference at the African Development Bank and they're standing up uh, unprompted and offering this, are we getting towards that area where they, they can see the unseen stunting and, and uh, the need for nutrition? Well, just just look at what the sun we've mentioned the 60 countries that there's never been anything like this everybody is sort of on the same page and focused on the same issues in a, and there's an awareness that i think is a unique moment which is why we can't let up can i come in for a moment sure. i agree very much with tom it is a unique moment and it is a small set of countries that needs to grow but more importantly is within these countries where you begin to see that attention of the finance or planning a budget uh, how do we grow that attention that that comes back to the question for n the all-of government approach because in a sense if you cannot mobilize larger groups of people and make it an issue for across the country and across political spectrums it will remain divided and small so that is my question you know how do we find a way to grow that political will uh, to where it reaches a threshold or a critical mass you see it in some countries you see it in bangladesh today which as a country is making significant investments what do we learn and how do we do it is it issues of capacity in that case, we also need to make those investments in capacity, uh, but it go beyond advocacy. Absolutely agree. Okay, let's take a round of new questions. Right here, right here in the middle, yeah. Please Hi, stand good, up, Thank Good you. afternoon, I'm Amy Johnson. I'm an independent consultant working primarily on social justice issues, but I'm also finishing up a certificate in nutrition programming through Tufts. Um, my question is, I'm going to uh, maybe try to shift the perspective a little bit because I think that we've been talking about um, momentum as an opportunity, but I'm really interested in zooming in a little bit further on that and hearing from the panelists, and uh, Kimberly, I would include you in this as well, um, it, whether there's a specific beacon of hope and you know somewhere where we can like stick our foot in the door so that we don't lose the momentum and it doesn't shut completely where is it that we can really uh capitalize and um you know make sure that there's a concerted effort or perhaps a, a group mobilization to ensure that the momentum continues excellent other questions yes right here Hi, I'm Jenny Lane. I'm a Leland Fellow and an Animal Health and Livelihoods Technical Advisor at Land O'Lakes International Development. And my question is for Anne. Hopefully, she, is she allowed to answer a question? Unfortunately, no. Oh, <laughs> you can ask your question and we can see what the panelists have to say that might be related to it. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, it, it, it builds off of Tom's comment on how difficult it is to kind of implement these multi-sectoral programs on the ground and I was my question was to Anne with her seeing 
kind of the process over the last three years of trying to have this kind of whole of government coordination plan to try to work on nutrition issues. That's really what we're ask we need on the ground in a lot of these other countries. So what were kind of two or three kind of good lessons that she has that they can she could recommend when we go into the field and try to work on this integration, we can say, well, we've done it here. This is how hard it was, but this is what we learned. Thank you. Let's get Ann a microphone. I'm not going to try and answer that. I think there are a lot of issues that you know need to be discussed around that, a lot of great experience. Tom, you've got experience. Rajul, love to pick up on that. I think that's another topic. But um, I, I think just in general, it's got to be addressed at every level. You've got to have the high-level champions. You've got to have the technical people who understand the multi-sectoral nature of things. And I think you've got to have ordinary people, communities, mothers, fathers, grandmothers, recognizing that there's a problem. And I think if we, we work on that as a, a very holistic thing, and uh, I think we have some good examples in some countries like Nepal where I've worked, where, some, where you know, local uh, governments understand the issue, communities are rallying around it. It doesn't work in Kathmandu so well, maybe, but it, it works in the districts a little bit better where things are smaller, more manageable, people are neighbors, they know each other. Um, I, I think another way to get people uh, understanding and aware is something that we have used very successfully at USAID is the profiles, where um, you start to generate the political will by understanding what is the economic impact of malnutrition in all its forms um, on this country. And it, you, know, you, you, you feed the data into a model, you show ministers of finance and ministry of finance personnel, you show the agriculture team, you show the health team, and uh, the, the prime minister and all the leaders start to rally around and truly understand what, what is the value of investing in nutrition and, and what is the impact that we can see by actually putting our money toward that. Bangladesh is a good example of where that has worked as well. So I see another panel coming. I mean, <laughs> you know, we can. Thank you. This panel is excellent. I want to hear more <laughs> questions for them. Thank you so much. Let's take one right here in the front. That was a smooth transition, Anne. I was about to <laughs> fall on the stage. Hi, I'm Angela Canterbury with the Volunteers for Economic Growth Alliance, or VEGA, and we're a consortium of 29 NGOs, including Land O'Lakes. Uh, we do a range of economic growth and prosperity building, but we have three Feed the Future programs, one of which is coming online with a private sector partner on nutrition. We also have some farmer-to-farmer -farmer programs, and I just I have a question for Ryan because she and her boss have been just phenomenal champions for how to mobilize and partner with highly skilled Americans to infuse that sort of expertise and partnership with local partners around the globe. Also, creating a political constituency, by the way, as we do this. Also leaders in private sector partnerships and how do you leverage the interest that corporations have in meeting the SDGs, for example, to get more U.S. involvement because then therefore there's more e economic opportunity all around. Let's take one more question and then we'll wrap it up. Um, Asma in the back. Thank you and thanks for uh, excellent remarks. Um, 
You know, Anne mentioned technical expertise, and over the last several years, as the U.S. government has been responding to um, to the Sun Movement and really scaling up its own work on nutrition, and with the coordination plan and the um, multi-sectoral um, plan at AID, one of the risks in this current budget environment is the risk of losing that technical expertise at USAID on these issues. Um, I'd love the panel to just reflect a little bit on the impact that that would have on the programs that are currently underway. Very good question. Do you wanna, anybody wanna jump in or start? Why don't we start down at the end, Ryan, since one question was specific to you, and then we'll come all the way up. And I would ask each of you, um, since we were nearing the six or seven minute remark, that you also include uh, your response to the question in regards to the beacon of hope. Let's find some positivity in the midst of this budget week or things that you're holding on to. Ryan, go ahead. Um, well, to Angela's question, you know, you know, how do you mobilize um, the private sector and and, um, and and volunteers to be involved in it? And I think it's awareness um, at all sorts of different levels, whether that's through um, your political leaders in, in a particular place or, um, you know, or in your local communities and just trying to figure out if it's through your corporate social responsibility even. Um, some of those issues, I, I, I know my boss has, uh, I, should have said this earlier, but he's also co-chair of the Caucus for Effective Foreign Assistance, which really is looking for innovative ways to engage the private sector um, with the public sector and trying to find ways to make our dollars go further because we do have to deal with very real um, financial constraints that, you know, that are coming down the pike um, and, and have been around, frankly, for a few years, too. So, um, you know, it's one of those things where I think, I think a lot of it has to do with just awareness and knowing what's out there and what, and uh, what you can do in these places. Um, and then to kind of wrap it up with the beacon of hope um, kind of thing, you know, I think a lot of what I, uh, have enjoyed most about my job is being able to go to the field and see, um, you know, firsthand experience of what what we're actually doing on the ground. And and um, I've gotten to see uh, activities, uh, maternal child health programming in Burundi. I've gotten to see Feed the Future programming in Senegal. Um, I've I've been to several different places to see the effects that we're having. Um, and frankly, I've I've traveled to other developed countries that were former recipients of of U.S. foreign assistance. Um, and, and know what can be down the line there. And I think, I think that's something that I, I think about and try to make the case for. Um, I know my boss thinks that uh, Sub-Saharan Africa is a place that we should be focusing on, that there is great potential there for so many different reasons. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, I think, I think that's what I hold on to is we've, we've, seen, we've seen the work, we've seen the results. Um, you know, and I think Senegal was a great example. We saw everything from the smallest, smallest share, uh, you know, this small farm where I think 50 women all worked in this one communal uh, garden and they were so proud of what they were able to do and, and they worked with Heifer International to have, um, you know, uh, goats and even cattle to help uh, supplement their, their kids' diets. Um, and then all the way up to, you know, pretty scaled up commercial enterprise too. And, and how do you um, move from that and, and progress on to something that is more, uh, more scalable, could be good for export. Um, so I think, I think 
you know, I, I'm kind of rambling, and I apologize for that. But, but I think it's one of those things where it's helpful for policymakers to see the effects of the money that we're spending. And I think, you know, through our work with the caucus, through my boss's work on the Foreign Relations Committee, and through, um, you know, other other avenues, we, we've seen that. And I think there are a lot of members um, who are informed on a lot of these issues due to a lot of their firsthand experiences. So I hope that answers the question. That's a great perspective. Um, so, so yeah. So starting with the, the 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 sort of more, um, you know, sort of depressing question, perhaps in terms of what's you know what might be at stake. Um, you know, I, I think we we all know what what will be at stake if you know if um, you know if big drastic cuts are made to the foreign affairs budget. It will not. Uh, make America safer, um, that's for sure. Um, and it will, you know, I think American taxpayers honestly um, deserve a budget um, that reflects American values, um, that uh, does put America first in the sense of America exhibiting its leadership in the world. Um, so, you know, we, we have to, I, I mean, I think you, you said it brilliantly, we, we cannot afford to take our foot off the gas. We can't afford to undo the progress um, that we've made uh, on global development. Um, the beacons of hope are countries like Senegal. They're countries like Peru that have really reduced stunting um, in a short amount of time, a relatively short amount of time. And a lot of that was sort of, you know, high level political commitment, but also, you know, just um, the, the hard work of in the, uh, in the trenches of, of breaking down those silos and, 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 and thinking multi-sectorally and across ministries um, and, and programming that way and programming the dollars that way. Um, you know, for, from, from our standpoint, we have been saying for a long time, we're, we need more money for nutrition and more nutrition for the money. So in these budget-constrained environment, how can all of, all of foreign, all the foreign assistance um, investments that we make as a country, how can they work harder to prevent stunting, to prevent anemia? We didn't talk enough about anemia, I don't think. Um, you know, to, to prevent uh, all these conditions that really hold people back, hold families back, hold countries back. Um, the beacon of hope. Well, you know, the first thousand days, you know, young children, uh, expectant mothers, I mean, that, you know, that is in and of itself a beacon of hope. Um, but as advocates, you know, we look to the big key moments. We look to the, to, to the moments in time where we can, um, you know, provide a platform for policymakers to make new commitments, to, for, for, for financial um, pledges to be made. Uh, and I think for us, you know, we're looking right now at the World Bank. Uh, you know, we have tremendous leadership in, in Jim Kim, the president of the World Bank. Uh, we've got some new women's empowerment fund that's showing up at, at the World Bank, uh, you know, thanks to, uh, to, to, to Jim Kim and, and Ivanka Trump. Um, so I think this is, you know, they, the, the, the fall meeting in October is an opportunity to leverage, um, you know, the, the, uh, um, the, the, the foundation that Jim Kim uh, has laid and the call that he has put forward to, to ministers of finance and saying, you know, come to, come to this meeting in October with, you know, with your plans for how, how you're going to invest and leverage uh, World Bank resources uh, to invest in nutrition. So that is something that, that we're looking forward to. Um, starting with the, the question about USAID, I mean, I, I think the, we know the answer, as Lucy said, but it strikes me, I was reading an article a few days ago by former administrator Natsios, who's making the point, look, we know what happens if we do this, and that, that previously there had been a devastating effect on USAID in the loss of technical staff and, and low numbers of people working. 
Um, I'll try for two beacons of hope. At, we've seen it at the community level when we bring people together from different sectors to get them to work on nutrition, they love it. They get excited about it. Extension agents are proud that they're doing something about kids' nutrition. So that's a beacon of hope. Another beacon of hope is consensus. And that's this moment that I'm, I'm so excited about. For some reason, people in nutrition are oddly contentious. Um, I, I, I often say that whenever you have two nutritionists in a room, you have at least three opinions. Um, <clears throat> but we're, we, you know, the difference between nutrition and say something like malaria was the people in malaria, they all knew what they want to do. The people in pneumonia, they all knew what they want to do. And nutrition, we were just wrestling with each other and, and fighting. But now we're all on the same page. And I think that globally, we're going to see some, some important things happen if we don't take our foot off the gas. <laughs> I have my beacon of hope, quite frankly, is Congress, um, because when, when you ask that question, I'm, of course, just thinking about the budget. And I think that, you know, the numbers that we could throw out that I prepared, I thought it doesn't quite matter because it's a proposal, you know, like, but regardless, it's a political statement that this administration wants to take things down a different path. Um, and as, as Ryan reminded us, it's a process and Congress is in charge of the purse. And Fortunate for us, we have a lot of congressional champions, whether it's food security or nutrition and even development. There are a lot of people on the Hill who get it and who are ready to fight for this. And so I think while it will be a healthy, robust debate and a process, um, I think there are plenty of people on the Hill and plenty of people helping advocate and educate new policymakers on the Hill that will continue. Um, the other beacon of hope that I'll just state is a, Tom, a comment that Tom made earlier, but I think it's the progress we've seen on the linkages between ag and nutrition through Feed the Future. And even though it's highly unfortunate but highly probable that we're going to see some cuts to that program, um, I think the progress, which there's still plenty more to be made, but the progress of seeing pro projects in the field in terms of agronomists and nutritionists actually working together is progress and, and that we're going to continue to see that to have more integrated development that we all talk about, but to actually have integrated development um, you know, mandated by a U.S project that you have to bring those things together for your indicators is, is when we actually see a difference. Thank you so much for coming. This was a good and uh, lively conversation. I'm so grateful that we were able to have so many of you participate in it and very grateful for Anne as well as our panelists for a lively conversation. Thank you so much.